0: Welcome back to Elderside, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha,
1: And I'm Glenn McDormand. This episode, we are covering The Girl with the Gray Eyes by William Hope Hodgson. This is a story that was originally published in Red Magazine in 1913. And this is the story that won our first Patreon vote. And it also means that we're doing back-to-back Hodgson stories, and also that Hodgson is the first writer to get two stories into the Elderside canon. When we started this show, I would never, ever have guessed that that honor would go to anyone other than H.P. Lovecraft. But in fact, we actually had some surprising results overall in that Patreon vote.
0: That's right. And they were great to see. You. And first, I just want to thank all of the patrons who voted. We really appreciate you participating in our polls and our podcasts. We'd love to see your comments on the forum. And we're eternally grateful that you are supporting this podcast, both with your money, and also with your votes. Glenn, as you said, this story won our first Patreon vote for The Elder Sign Podcast, but we also had a bunch of other great writers who were on the poll and who we'll be covering. We'll be covering stories from China Mielville, Arthur Mackin, and Ray Bradbury.
1: Yeah, this is all very exciting. Arthur Mackin, we've done already, of course, but China Melville, we've we've never covered a China Melville story or a Ray Bradbury story on any of our shows, both of which seem crazy. So that will be a lot of fun to do. And of course, we're also going to record the runner up in this vote as one of our monthly Patreon episodes. And that story is The Phoenix on the Sword by Robert E. Howard. Uh, this is the very first Conan the Barbarian story. I have to say, I was surprised that this story didn't make it into the main show, but I Was even more surprised that H.P. Lovecraft came in dead last. I do not think that that will be a trend that continues for long, though, as we get more patrons who are here mostly for Elder Sign content rather than for Gene Wolfe and Star Trek. So let's get into this short story. It is one that is, I think, going to defy our expectations, and uh, that defiance of expectations is going to supply the bulk of my commentary and really our single discussion question at the end of the the recap. So Brandon, take us away.
0: Yeah, you're not wrong about this story defying the uh, expectations of maybe the whole premise of our podcast. (laughs) The story opens with Harry, who is the narrator of The Girl with the Gray Eyes. Harry has a chum called Jack, and Jack is ecstatic about a girl he just met. She's five feet two, which is perfect because Jack hates big girls. And she's dainty. She's got Tiny hands and feet. Harry is a little taken aback here by Jack's excitement about this girl, but he lets Jack continue in his ongoing description of her, which has moved to the girl's eyes, which are special. They're gray, and a kind of gray that Jack has never seen in his life. Harry interjects here that the girl's eyes are the type that would eat all the world up, but Jack is too caught up in his description to hear anything. Harry says.
1: This is a pretty great opening for this story. There are several things that jump out to me. The first is that I was unaware until this story just how many times you could use the word chum in one paragraph, and also that chum could be a verb. Uh, So that was just a great part of the story. But the second thing that really strikes me about this opening is that the story begins in media res, or or at least in media conversation, we might say. Jack has already been telling Harry about this woman by the time the, the story starts. And maybe it's only for a sentence or two, but possibly several minutes, possibly several tens of minutes have gone by in this conversation already, given how bored of this Harry already seems. And indeed, Harry's only fun, his only real interest in this conversation is in quietly making fun of his chum Jack by supplying literary help for Jack's otherwise pedestrian description of an attractive woman. Harry gives Jack an adjective when he's at a loss for words and Then when Jack says simply that her eyes are gray, this is when Harry says, eat all the world up, as you you said, Brandon. But this is not just a random comment or even a weird sounding comment, though. Harry's actually quoting from a a popular poem here. Uh, He's quietly having his own fun because Jack is boring him. So he's just quoting poetry that this conversation reminds him of. And the poem he's quoting is a folk poem. It's a a sort of folk song, really, from 19th century England. Uh, It's probably actually a little bit older than that. But those are the sort of first published versions that we have. And there are, in fact, a number of versions of that poem, which, you know, typically, the case with folk literature, but most of them go something like this. Blue-eyed beauty, do your mother's duty. Gray-eyed, greedy gut, eat all the world up. So it's a it's a rhyme about the the personality characteristics that are associated with women's eye color. Clearly here, it just means that women with gray eyes are gluttonous. I'm not sure what the study is that shows that. But hey, in the 19th century, there was a poem about it. But since we are reading a William Hope Hodgson story, it seems right now that the narrator is making a wry joke that is actually setting up the horror of the story. This woman has a very weird shade of eye color. And presumably, then, she may, in fact, really eat all the world up, right? That she might be some kind of creature who is a devourer of worlds.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I had no idea about the reference to that line. And I'm really glad you brought that to the discussion. Because I was reading this, you know, early on my first read of the story, thinking, yes, we are setting up the kind of femme fatale of the story. But that that's not quite what's going on as we'll soon discover and harry is with jack on business and which is something we'll find out very soon but first jack has more to say about this girl and he goes on to describe how he met her it was in bendigo 6 months back they were introduced to some sort of party and jack hung on to her hand a little too long and he hasn't seen her since that awkward moment until today the girl is in melbourne and she's staying at the same hotel as Jack and Harry.
1: This is a nice quiet way of letting us know that this story takes place in Australia. So it seems that we're going to be drawing on a location that would be exotic to readers in in London in the Edwardian age. This is a real staple of the genre, of course. And on top of this, It isn't just that Jack held onto this woman's hand for an inappropriate amount of time, like an embarrassing amount of time. It's that he forgot he was even holding her hand. And the way this is presented has a real eerie feeling about it. Like there's some kind of hypnosis or or mesmerism that's going on here.
0: Yeah, that's absolutely right. And Harry here breaks the reader's spell over (laughs) Jack's description of the girl to tell us how he and Jack came to be in Australia. At 18 years of age Harry went to work for his father who was the country solicitor Jack his chum and you know Glenn I'm really glad you pointed out how many times we're going to get chum in this story it's not just the first paragraph it is all over this story. It's crazy.
1: Yeah, we're keeping it at about 5% of the usage that Hodgson <laughs> right. gives in here. it here. That was like a hard limit we gave ourselves.
0: Yeah. Well, Jack had no prospects after school, and so he tried his luck in the colonies. No one had heard from Jack for six years, but Jack's uncle died, leaving his entire estate to his nephew, Jack. Harry volunteers to take a trip to Australia to track Jack down. It takes Harry a few months to find Jack in the back blocks of Australia. But eventually, Harry finds Jack and they make their way to Melbourne in order to catch a boat home. But Jack is obsessed with this girl and his madness over her is preventing Harry from getting his work done
1: some interesting backstory here. Harry and Jack are both members of the English upper middle class, but Jack's immediate family seems to have run out of money. Uh, You know, his father or something like that has has squandered the family fortune. And so Jack has gone off to make a new one. This is a, a tale as old as time, right? And where he has gone is Bendigo in Australia, which is in the middle of a gold rush. The fact that he immediately abandons his efforts to return to England and succeed his uncle as a country gentleman suggests that probably he was not having much luck at finding any actual gold. And as we're going to learn in this story, Jack just might not be good at things. So this is no surprise here. I want to glom onto this phrase that you uh, you used here that you've taken from Hodgson, Brandon, the back blocks, because this really excited me. And what Harry says is, I found my man a way up in the back blocks. And as I was reading this, I felt certain that he was going to say a way up in the back of beyond, which is a phrase we've encountered a lot on the Gene Wolfe literary podcast in Wolfe's masterpiece novel, The Fifth Head of Cerberus, which we've just finished up. I was disappointed that it didn't, but this term back blocks is basically the same thing. It's a version unique to Australia. And it just means that Harry didn't find Jack at a hotel bar in Bendigo. He actually had to go out in the wilderness to find him where Jack presumably was by himself or with a few other people, like you know, panning for gold. And for me, there's a whole story there waiting to be written.
0: There are a number of stories embedded in this one that are waiting <laughs> to be written. That's <laughs> true. <laughs> Well, the night that Jack has burst into Harry's hotel room talking about this girl was the night that Harry was hoping to have some downtime so he could complete some work and order room service. But Jack insists that Harry join him for the dinner service at the hotel so that they can be near the girl. As soon as Harry meets the girl, he understands what Jack sees in her. In fact, he catches himself staring at her, which prompts Jack to kick Harry under the table. So the two men get up and leave the table, and Jack asks Harry how he's supposed to get to know the girl with the gray eyes. Jack doesn't feel like this girl even recognizes him, much less his existence, even though he's been sitting across from her at the table this whole night. Plus, neither one of them knows anybody who could make a formal introduction between Jack and the girl, and Jack is certain that the girl doesn't want any new friends, Especially as she was accompanied to dinner by a handsome, tall, blonde man whose hair is also red, uh, as we'll find out later, too. Harry leaves Jack dejected at this point because he just is tired of this business and he wants to go back to his room
1: to work. Yeah, there's a real introvert-extrovert dynamic to their friendship here, I think. Well, again, in this dinner scene, we get this kind of hypnotic effect from the girl with the gray eyes. And, and this time it's actually on the narrator. It's on Harry, who doesn't seem inclined to be interested in women here. He certainly wants his alone time and you know wants to get his work done. But nonetheless, even though he's not actually interested in her, he's not there to pursue her the way Jack is. Still, she has this kind of strange effect on him.
0: That night after Harry has dozed off, he's awakened by a hand that is shaking him. Jack, and here we learn that Jack is a nickname for John, has come up with a plan to get to know the girl. Harry, who knows something of Jack's schemes, tells Jack that he has no business waking him up at midnight to tell him of some half-cocked plan to win the girl with the gray eyes over. And so Harry just goes back to sleep and he's in a bit of a rage here.
1: Yeah, Harry's annoyed at being woken up because after dinner he's been working all night before going to bed. And I have to wonder, what work the the voyage from the UK to Australia is a matter of months <laughs> and there's no internet. So what work has he brought with them? Has he just brought like suitcases, like whole trunks full of paperwork, like lawyer paperwork for him to do? Now I realize this is just a way to characterize Harry as a serious dude with serious business, but it just hurts me to imagine Harry traveling halfway around the world and then just doing paperwork in his hotel room. Like, I, I want to believe this is a problem uh, for us. This is a problem of our now that our bosses can email us, you know, even when we're on our honeymoons and such.
0: Right. Well, his boss is his dad. So that's part of it. But I was wondering the same thing as I was reading this story. I'm like, what did he bring? A trunk? Of, of paperwork over? And even then, how is he supposed to get it back? How much work, when you're far from the office and nobody can get you any inf- additional information or paperwork, could he possibly be doing? There's no fax machines. Maybe there are telegrams, but even so, how could he generate this much work that's keeping his mind so busy and on all this stuff? there are some gaps in the plotting of this story.
1: And I just think, I think it's really funny. And I think it's a lot of fun. Well, to be clear, Hodgson doesn't say he's doing his lawyer work. So this is where, again, I think there's another story to be told. What is Harry actually up to that he needs to be left alone in his hotel room for, right? Some He's on some kind of other weird fiction or pulp adventure besides whatever Jack has got going on.
0: <laughs> well, I think that's a very generous way to read this story. <laughs> <laughs> Well, because Harry kind of went off on Jack the night before, Jack is cold towards Harry the whole next day. And Harry thinks this is foolish, and he's a little annoyed by it. But as we said, he's got a lot of work to do. So he takes advantage of the time away from Jack and waits until Jack returns to his senses. The men meet up again the next morning at breakfast, and Harry eventually brings up Miss Gray Eyes. This is the most formal name we get for this character in this story. Uh, Jack is in a real state here because the woman is never without the red-haired gentleman who is the man they met uh, who accompanied the woman with gray eyes two nights before at dinner. Furthermore, Jack has another idea, but he doesn't want Harry to throw cold water on it. Jack bets he can get to know the girl in the next 24 hours. Harry wants to know Jack's plan, but now Jack refuses to share it. So
1: Harry returns to his work until evening. Right. Now we seem finally to be getting to the real action of the story. And this is typical of Edwardian short stories, right? Hinging the action on a bet and then watching the underdog beat the odds through some ridiculously clever scheme. This is actually kind of what's at the core of like every Sherlock Holmes story as well. And also Arthur Conan Doyle wrote a ton of stories that are exactly this mechanism. Most of them are about boxing. So at this point in the story, then, I'm wondering if it's the scheme that is really going to be important here, or if we're still just being set up for whatever horrific thing is going to happen to Jack when he discovers that Miss Gray Eyes is really a praying mantis or something.
0: <laughs> well, I can tell you've been rewatching Buffy, Glenn.
1: <laughs> <laughs> It's true. We're in season two now.
0: <laughs> uh, well, Harry continues his work until Jack bursts into his room in a brusque manner. Well, Harry asks... Jack says, rather cryptically, that he's introduced himself to the girl. Harry wants to know what has happened. Essentially, Jack paid some goons to scare the girl so that he could come around and play the hero role. The plan, though, comes off disastrously, because the girl with the gray eyes was with the red-haired man, who is a rough customer himself, and the red-haired man pulls a gun on the goons and begins shooting at them. Jack didn't even have the opportunity to be the hero. And the red-haired man is
1: still in his position with relation to the girl with the gray eyes. Yeah, we've all had this fantasy in high school, right? Coming to the rescue of somebody and uh, and then kindling up a romance as a result of it. But it's a terrible idea. I'm certain that this sort of romance only happens in literature. I don't think there's a single relationship that has ever actually started this way, at least not one that has lasted, one that has gone the way that Jack is hoping it will. So seriously, don't try this at home. It's a stupid idea.
0: It's a really stupid idea. Jack here, though, thinks he knows how to make lemonade out of this situation, so to speak. So he ran up after this altercation has taken place and asked if he could be of any assistance but the red-haired man had the situation neatly in hand. However, this was a good enough introduction that Jack was able to chat with them a bit and invites them to go sailing with him on his yacht the next day. At this point, Harry has to stop Jack's recounting of this story. And it's in part due to the shock that Harry experiences because Jack doesn't actually own a yacht. So Jack explains that he bought a yacht that afternoon after making the promise to take the two out on his boat. Jack hopes he can win the girl over from the red-haired man that accompanies her by showing off his new wealth and financial status. Harry is really skeptical of this, but Jack is certain that he can do it
1: yeah, well, here we see what kind of person Jack is, right? Hiring these goons in the first place cost him a lot of money. Now he's just buying a boat to impress this woman who's already in some kind of relationship. So I think it's pretty clear that he is not going to survive very long as a country gentleman. and he's going to be right back here trying to pan for gold in the the back of beyond in Australia before too long.
0: The next day, Jack takes the girl and the red-haired chap out on his yacht, and he does so for the next three days. But it turns out that he's made no progress in winning over the girl with the gray eyes affection, which only amuses Harry, who is still just really concerned with his paperwork. But Harry can tell that Jack has come up with another secret plan. And he's proven right when Jack, the gray-eyed girl, and the red-haired man all show up to Harry's hotel room dripping with seawater and each of them are miserable. They're unhappy. Jack changes, and I guess the the red-haired man and gray-eyed girl leave off scene here, and tells Harry what has happened. Wanting to prove his heroism once more to the gray-eyed lady, Jack capsized the yacht on purpose during a squall. Jack, though, got tangled in a wet sail and nearly drowned, and was saved by both the gray-eyed girl and the red-haired gentleman. All of this makes Jack even more angry at the situation that he's put himself in.
1: We've now full on entered the slapstick comedy phase of this story. And I have to say it really works for me. I'm loving this story so far. This is a great trope, right? But it is also something that I think most of us have probably experienced in our own lives, doubling down on a terrible idea and just compounding the problem in ways that are hilarious to to bystanders, right? I've certainly done this. I've been the active agent in doing this for the amusement of others. And I have been amused by others making this same type of mistake.
0: Yeah, it is pretty funny. And this Jack character is a riot. The next day, Jack offers to pay the red-haired devil, as he's calling him now, for services rendered for saving his life. This is a nasty gesture. And the other man refuses to accept Jack continues to insist, and the other man continues to refuse until the men come to blows. They have a fight. Jack wins the fight, but afterwards, he holds up in his room for a few days to hide how much damage he really took. Eventually, he emerges and meets Harry for breakfast. The gray-eyed girl is sitting opposite Jack and Harry, the same setup that was the dinner service they had before and Harry can tell that if she could get a moment alone with Jack, she would give him an earful. The girl is fuming, and Harry's right about this. Two hours later, Jack meets Harry in his hotel room to catch him up on what has happened. The gray-eyed girl just gives Jack hell, but her temper only makes Jack love her more. Once she got her piece out, Jack apologized and told her that he was really ashamed of himself and the way he acted. But he only did it because he loves her, and he never would have acted that way if he weren't so jealous of the other gentleman that has been escorting her around. For some reason, when Jack admits this to the girl, she gets a look in her eye and doesn't seem nearly as angry with him as she was before. Still, she sends him away. But before he goes, he asks if there's a chance between them or if she really loves the other man. She says that she loves the other man very much and that Jack should never speak in this way to her again.
1: This is an extremely dramatic turn of events here. Jack essentially challenges this red-haired dude to a fight, right? He knows exactly how his offer of treating him like a hired servant is, is going to go. But even though Jack wins the fight, it just doesn't get him anywhere. And at this point, I'm not even sure if we're supposed to be rooting for him, like we as, as an audience here. But also at this point, realizing that there are only a few paragraphs left in this story, I'm also wondering when Miss Grey Eyes is going to eat somebody or something. And uh, there will be more on that in the discussion.
0: <laughs> well, I will ruin the surprise now. Miss Grey Eyes does not eat anybody or bring anyone to harm. Uh, Jack decides to continue to delay his and Harry's departure back to London for weeks and weeks because he just can't imagine losing the girl. And while the girl keeps Jack at a distance for a little while, eventually she worms to him. One day, after about six weeks, Jack bursts into Harry's room again. He's one. He plans on marrying the girl. And Harry here asks, what about the other man? Jack sits down and says with great solemnity, he's her brother. The red-haired man didn't want to say anything about that after the fight, and it only came out by accident this very day. Jack was so elated by this news that he tackles the gray-eyed girl right off, and she caves in and promises to never play a trick like that again. Isn't that just like her? Jack says. Harry says, you should know. And after Harry says that, Jack leaves to arrange a date with the gray-eyed girl. And here the story ends.
1: Right. He means to set a date for the wedding, which I think is going to actually be this very week, as he he says. So, yeah, that's the end of the story. Nobody gets devoured by anybody else. Uh, There's no actual hypnotism going on here. On top of that, we don't even get the actual romance of what turns out to be an actual rom-com. So it is certainly a story that defied my expectations, and that's a good transition into our discussion, where I think there's really only one question, which is this. What are the narrative elements that this rom-com shares with a proper Edwardian weird fiction tale, right? If you were a contemporary reader, Brandon, and didn't know what magazine this was in, would you know right off that this wasn't going to end with the whole world being devoured, right? What are the tricks that Hodgson is using here that are, are common to both of these genres?
0: That's a fantastic question. And I think you've done a really good job during your commentary of the recap to point out a lot of elements in this story that are shared with the weird fiction genre. Here are the ones that really stood out to me as I was reading this story, pseudo expecting a weird fiction tale. You have a man searching in an exotic location for a friend he lost track of six years ago. Uh, you have him doing that because of a mysterious recent inheritance that he must pass on to this person. There is all of the elements of the girl with the gray eyes who seems to have some sort of special powers. And the line of, of her eating the world up is cueing me into the sense that she's got some sort of special ability or she's a witch or hypnotist or something like that. And you have the the narrator who is... Apart from the main action of the story, giving us the elements of the plot while kind of hiding his own role in it, though indicating that he too is impacted by what is going on in the plot. Plus, you have all these crazy intrusions and people bursting in with news. Jack is acting mad. We don't know Jack before this story, but he's certainly acting out of sorts and a little crazed. So, all of that are elements I would think to find in a, in a weird fiction tale. And as you also pointed out you know, during the recap, there are many moments in this story where I was like, well, there's the story I have to write. That's the weird fiction story. There's this, there's this element that can be blown up and told a different way. Uh, and it's surprising that this is really just a, a romantic comedy. It is what the back of this
1: uh, edition that we read it out of calls women's fiction. Right, the whole setup of this—the lawyer having to go deliver some papers and and you know get signatures and and so on. I mean, this is the exact plot of you know hundreds of these types of stories. You know, the one that comes to mind for me immediately is the Woman in Black, which is not actually an Edwardian story, but but it has this same setup. There is also the exotic location, right? Setting this story in Australia, and not just in Australia, but uh, setting it, or at least having Jack been previously in the deep wilderness in Australia primed me to be thinking that the the girl with the gray eyes was going to turn out to actually be some kind of Australian supernatural creature of some sort, some creature in indigenous folklore or something like that. Here I'm thinking of Algernon Blackwood's use of the Wendigo uh, to tell a similar story, though, you know, Blackwood mostly made up all of the things that he says about the Wendigo. I assumed Hodgson was going to do the same thing here, but that the gray eyes were going to be the clue, right? That we were going to get that the indigenous inhabitants of Australia tell some story about a gray eyed demon or or gray eyed demons or, or something like that. And that was going to be the, the clue. So we have all of these building blocks here for what could be actually an amazing weird fiction story, uh, including what is Jack actually doing out there here? Clearly he is just out panning for gold, but like, what if he's out there actually looking through, you know, some ancient indigenous temple or something like that. And that's what unearths the the, the creature that'd be straight out of a lovecraft right that's how lovecraft would tell this story for sure so all of these elements are here and i have to say though I, I loved this story i had a great time reading it i was a little surprised at the end because i did not realize that this was a rom-com and not actually a weird fiction story until the very end i kept waiting for you know the anvil to to fall on my head but I can imagine that Hodgson actually wrote this as a weird fiction story or wrote, you know, half of it or two thirds of it, not sure which genre he was going to end it with. And maybe actually even wrote two different endings here and was sending it out to magazines of different genres simultaneously. I don't believe that that's actually true. But I can imagine that this was part of his writing process here trying to to make it as a, as a writer trying to get stories out and get them published.
0: Yeah, I mean, even the title itself is highly ambiguous. The Girl with the Gray Eyes does not sound like a romantic comedy tale or women's fiction story. Uh, Jack in this story is an absolute brute that I don't think, you know, if the target audience is women, would think, oh, I I would love to have this guy hire goons to try and rough me
1: and my brother up. And yeah, we'll get married in six weeks from that moment. Um, so this is a story that could have been written by any one of the Brontes, to be clear. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and the
0: action of the story also follows this bizarre thing where Jack is engaging in all of these hijinks. And we know he's trying to win the girl over, but because of the point of view that it's told him, to, we're not seeing in the tale any indication that the girl is interested in Jack at all, and so it, it has this weird element where Jack could literally be doing anything and any outcome could come from it as you pointed out and so the way the story just wraps up at the end is almost arbitrary because this story could have ended any other way, including the gray eyed girl bursting into Harry's room at the end to drink his blood or something like that as she and he realizes Jack is dead you know that This story could have just ended that way. And everything that would
1: have led up to it would have been believable. And it may still end that way. We don't actually know anything that's going on between Jack and the girl with the gray eyes, because everything that we know is just from Jack telling us this stuff. We don't actually have any independent confirmation that the red-haired dude is her brother and not just a victim. She's used up and is now moving on to, to Jack. So, I mean, we could write Another act to this story, or a sequel to it, in which actually everything that we've just pointed out is in fact true—that it is a weird fiction story—that he's going to take this uh, indigenous Australian supernatural creature uh, back to England, and you know she's going to be let loose in Warwickshire or something like that. And I don't—I would like to read that book. Actually. Yeah,
0: I would too. That sounds like a great book. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, as I said, I really did love this story, but I was surprised that it turned out to be a rom-com and. I'm certain that listeners will too. This story did win the Patreon vote. Uh, It it received three times as many votes as an H.P. Lovecraft story did. And I'm not sure that people really knew what the story was. They just like Hodgson and saw a Hodgson story on there. And how this story got on the ballot to begin with is that it is included in this beautiful volume by Nightshade Books that includes as its centerpiece Hodgson's magnificent weird fiction novel, The The Nightland. And it is not really made clear in the table of contents necessarily that the section of short stories that are also included in this book are actually all these romances. If you've read the introduction, that's clear, but I didn't do that. I knew that I had read The Nightland. That's why I had this book to begin with and said, I never read any of these short stories. Let's, let's put one of those on the ballot because it would be great to, to read them but i'm not disappointed that this actually turned out not to be a weird fiction story when we started this project one of the things that we talked about was that most of the writers we're going to read aren't exclusively weird fiction writers, that they write in other genres. And something we'd be interested in doing would be checking out their work in non-weird fiction genres. Now, we also meant to start that process several years into the podcast, uh, not you know, 15 episodes in uh, as we are now. But checking out someone who writes both weird fiction and romance fiction in particular was on my sort of to-do list. Uh, I was thinking of Robert W. Chambers, who really only has the one significant volume of weird fiction. The, the King and Yellow, which we have started, but really made a living as a, a romance writer well we 've taken care of that here with Hodson and i 'm glad to have read this story <laughs> me
0: too it 's a lot of fun, and this is the kind of stuff that, as a kind of amateur writer and aspiring writer, really gets my imagination going when you read a story that falls so short of your expectations. Uh, not because it's a bad story, but because you thought it was a perilous romance instead of what we'd call today a a romantic comedy. And that story shares so many elements with the weird fiction genre and other genres of literature. It kind of primes the imagination engine, so to speak, to get you to think about, well, how can you make this story something different? How can you take this and, and make it something new? And it's a great exercise to take those ideas and turn it into fiction, whether it's publishable or not because it just gets you to reinforce what you know about the genre. It gets you to put your talents on display. So one thing I'd like to encourage our listeners to do is if they can turn this into a different short story in a different genre, we would love to read it. You could share it with us on the forum or email us uh, individually. That's something we love to do. and, and, And sometimes we find stories that are better writing prompts than stories. And often, they're early Lovecraft stories. But this one works as well as a better writing prompt for a different genre than the story is for uh, the genre we expected it to be written in.
1: By my count, there are at least four writing prompts that we have identified in this story. I would love to read any or all of them. So yes, please take us up on this. Uh, I think I'm going to take us up on this. I there's some good story ideas here. Uh, and Hodgson is, is a real master of, of this, of laying these breadcrumbs as well. Uh, fantastic story. I was happy to have read this.
0: Absolutely. But I think on that note, it's time for us to go. So that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Brandon Buddha,
1: And I'm Glenn McDormand. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com.
0: Head over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know what you thought of The Girl with the Gray Eyes as I said, we'd love for you to take up some of our writing prompts. I think both Glenn and I will be doing that. Or let us know what you think about Hodgson and the way these writers in the 19th century were writing in multiple genres and trying to get published. There's a lot to talk about in this story that is not related to the story itself. So I'd love to hear from you on the forums.
1: Next time, we'll be back with reports of certain events in London by China Mieville, a very definitely actual weird fiction story, we promise. But until then, we greet you and say farewell.